Well, we're continuing in our series through the book of Exodus, and we come tonight to Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 7, verse 7. Up to this point, we've seen the dark plight of God's people in Egypt. They are slaves in a foreign land. But we've also seen that the Lord has heard their groaning. He has remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And he has seen the people of Israel. And the text says he knew. Chapter 2, verse 24. But not only did he see the affliction of his people, hear their cry, know their suffering. According to chapter 3, verse 8, it says he decided to come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of Egypt into the promised land. He was moved by the groaning of his people and moved by remembering his own covenant with the patriarchs. Being so moved, he appears to Moses, this was last week's text, and revealed the fullness of his name, Yahweh, the Lord, I am who I am. And at that time, he called Moses, and he called Aaron to be his spokesman to the people and to Pharaoh, and he called Moses in particular to be his agent of deliverance. And so, when we come to the end of chapter four, into our text tonight, in a sense, we we see that the drama of the story is about to begin. The rescue plan is in place. God has promised it. Moses and Aaron are ready. And the people, at the end of chapter four, they have believed God's promise that he's coming to deliver them. And here's how chapter four ends. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Everything is in place. Everything is ready. What could possibly go wrong? Well, let's pick up our story in chapter five. So you can turn there in your Bibles, Exodus chapter five, if you're not there already. I'm not going to read the entire passage out tonight, and so I just want to say a few words about the general structure of the text, and then as we go through it, you'll see it. The passage can be broken down in a variety of helpful ways, but for my purposes tonight, I want you to notice how the whole unit is bracketed by one idea, knowing the Lord, knowing the Lord. Specifically, at the beginning and end of our passage regarding Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So let's see that. Draw your attention to chapter 5, verse 2. This is Pharaoh's response when Moses and Aaron finally go in to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who? Who is the Lord? I do not know. The Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And now, flip over a page if you need to. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. This is the end of our passage. And it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So there we have it at the beginning. 
chapter five, verse two, and at the end of our unit, chapter seven, verse five, this idea of knowing the Lord. And not only is the whole unit bracketed by this idea, but it also occupies the central part of this section, only this time, not for Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but for Israel. So look at chapter six, verse seven. The Lord says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay, three times in such a short space. Clearly, this idea of knowing the Lord is prominent. It's important. It's like a thread that just runs through the entire passage. But how does it actually work in the flow of the story, in the events that Moses is recounting for us? Why does it occupy such a prominent place here? In order to give a full answer to that, we have to get ourselves back into the story. And there are basically two main major sections or movements in this passage. The first is chapter five, verses one to 21, which predominantly emphasizes Israel's what we might call intensified plight. They were already in a bad situation, but we're gonna find out that their situation gets even worse. That's the first section. Then the second section is chapter five, verse 22, all the way to chapter seven, verse seven. And that recounts primarily this all-important dialogue between Moses and the Lord, which features Moses' complaint and the Lord's response. There is a genealogy of Moses and Aaron inserted in chapter 6, verses 14 to 27, so that takes up a good chunk of the text. And we're not going to really spend any time on that other than to say this, which I'm sure you're all thrilled about. These genealogies can get long and we sometimes wonder what in the world's going on with them. But here's why this one is here in this context. They put it here in order to make evident the credentials of Moses and Aaron as bona fide Levites. In particular, Aaron. If you were to look closely at the genealogy, Aaron becomes prominent. He is a suitable partner, we could say, with Moses to be agents in God's deliverance of his people. This Moses and this Aaron have this heritage. They descend from Levi. So that's why the genealogy is there. But we'll start by looking at Israel's intensified plight. So the first section, verses 1 to 21 of chapter 5. So look with me at verse 1. Chapter five, Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh for the first time in our story. And it says this, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh's response is not quite what Moses or Aaron or the people themselves expected. Though, in light of chapter 4, verse 21, they probably should have expected this response. If you remember, after the Lord said to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go, and the rescue plan is going to get going, he said, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he won't listen to you. 
And that's exactly what we see at the beginning here of their confrontation with Pharaoh. Look at chapter 5, verse 2 again. Who is the Lord, Pharaoh says, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Now, this is not Pharaoh's honest inquiry. Like, I don't know the Lord. Moses and Aaron, would you please tell me? Like, inform me? I'm curious. I really, I really want to learn who the Lord is. That's not what's going on here in Pharaoh's mind. This is arrogance. Pharaoh's lack of knowledge is not primarily an intellectual problem. It's primarily a moral problem. More like the Lord? Ha, I don't know him. I don't recognize his authority. Certainly not over me. I'm the king of Egypt. Big time. I don't recognize the authority of this God, of the Lord. And no, I will not let you go. That's his response. In fact, he interprets their request as revealing idleness. You can see this in verse 8. Draw your attention there. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. And we'll come to the bricks thing in just a moment. Look also down at verse 17. But he, Pharaoh, said, you are idle. You are idle. Twice more. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So in his eyes, their problem is that they don't have enough work to do in the first place. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking to leave. The real problem is that they're idle, according to Pharaoh. And with their growing number being a serious concern for him, he decides to impose then this heavier workload, this burden upon the people. And in so doing, he also attempts to turn them against Moses by calling Moses' command to let them go lying words. You can see that in verse 9. Pharaoh says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Israelites, don't listen to Moses. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's lying. That's not what's good for you. What's good for you is what I'm saying, which is a little strange, but that's what he is trying to do. He's trying to get them to turn on one another. A house divided itself cannot stand. That's the idea. And the heavier burden, what is that? It has to do with this making bricks without straw. This is described in verses 6 to 14. And here's what's going on, basically. The Israelites are required to meet the same quota in terms of number of bricks made without being supplied the proper materials to make the bricks. Instead, now they have to, in addition to making bricks, the bricks for all Pharaoh's building projects and all the rest, they have to go out and get the straw, which is part of the material to make the bricks. They have to go out and find it and they have to collect it and they have to bring it back and then use it to build. That's this new burden. And they have to get the same quota as before. Now, obviously, that's not possible to get the same quota as before with all this extra work. And that's the point. 
That's the point. Pharaoh wants to make sure they know their place, putting his thumb on them. You are my slaves. Let me reinforce that. Remember who you are? That's the point of this burden. Imagine working night and day, day and night, day after day, night after night, collecting all this, working to meet these quotas, never meeting them. Imagine how discouraged and weary and flat out exhausted you would be. But it gets worse. The foreman. So Pharaoh has taskmasters that he sets over the people and these taskmasters have foremen of the people of Israel that are kind of in charge of the Israelites as they work. These foremen then, we learn, are actually beaten physically for not producing the desired results. You can see this in verse 14. Chapter five, verse 14. The foremen of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And you and I kind of have like, oh, we know why. (laughs) We know why they're not making it. It's an impossible request. And the foremen know that and they get pretty bold here. They actually go to Pharaoh and they basically say, the reason why, Pharaoh, we're not producing, it's, it's your fault. It's your people's fault. You're the one who's asking us to make the same number but adding all this extra work. We can't do that. This was your idea. That's why the bricks aren't being made, to your satisfaction. That's what they go to Pharaoh and say. But despite their bold attempt to reason with Pharaoh, is that what we would call it? He doubles down. And look at verses 17 and 18. After the foreman speak to Pharaoh, Pharaoh replies, you are idle, you are idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 18, go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Now the foreman, after hearing that, they rightly discern that this means trouble. (laughs) Verse 19 the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble <laughs> when they heard, now this is, this is still what the case is going to be. Pharaoh doubles down on it, doesn't budge at all. And when they leave Pharaoh's presence and they meet Moses and Aaron, we can see their frustration and anger. It's on full display. Look at verse 21. And they, that is the foremen, said to them, Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you might as well have put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, we should never have listened to you, Moses. It was bad before, but now it's worse. Thanks, but no thanks. That's basically what they say to Moses and Aaron. And so you can see part of the tactic of Pharaoh and turning them on against one another is working. Now this is, in the narrative flow of Exodus, this is a bit surprising. This is a bit surprising. Instead of the rescue plan commencing right away, 
which the people expected, the situation instead quickly deteriorates. It goes from bad to worse. The people's slavery is intensified. The foremen are beaten physically. The Israelites are turning on one another and against one another. And their general disposition as a result of all this is described in chapter 6, verse 9, as a broken spirit. Because of this harsh slavery, they now have broken spirits. They're discouraged. They're despondent. They're depressed. They're weary. They're exhausted. Hope is gone. I wonder, how often have you experienced this? In seeking to obey the Lord and to do what he asks and be faithful in your life, your life goes from bad to worse. How often have you experienced this? And you wonder why, and you wonder what he's doing providentially in and through what's happening in your life. I know that I've experienced this before. I think all of us, if we haven't experienced it yet, will experience it at some point in this life. And this is why I included Psalm 13 in our service tonight. We need help learning how to faithfully walk with the Lord in these kinds of circumstances, in these kinds of moments. We need to lament. And sometimes we're just not very good at it. We need help. And the Psalms are the best teacher in this regard. So if you find yourself in this kind of place, in this kind of emotional place tonight, I want you to take heart. You're not alone. You're not alone. This isn't a strange thing. You're in the company of some of the greatest saints the church has ever known. In fact, you're in the company of Jesus who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Keep coming to him though. You say, what do I do when I feel that way? Be like the psalmist. Keep coming before the Lord. Pour out your soul to him. Be honest with him. He knows already. Be honest with him. Pour out your soul to him. Keep coming before him and keep looking to him. He will be your refuge. He will be your strength. He will be your rock. And he will see you through it in his timing. If you belong to him, he has began a good work in you. And as Paul says, if he has begun a good work in you, he will see to its completion. He will. Hang on to him. Also, if that's you tonight, I would be more than happy to pray with you and pray for you after the service. Just come up and find me afterwards. Now back to our story here. I I can imagine... You try to imagine this with me. I can imagine the Israelites in their dire situation resonating with David's words from Psalm 13. Now, they weren't written yet, but if they had them, I think they would have been going to this psalm, among others, and praying them night and day. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
God, you promised you were gonna deliver. Pharaoh's still lording it over us and he's making our lives miserable. How long, O oh Lord? I can imagine the Israelites resonating greatly with that. And yet even their situation, as bad as it, as bad as it is, that's, it's actually not the biggest problem in our text. Not the biggest problem. The biggest problem Moses gives in his words that come next. So we'll let him say them. This is verses 22 and 23. So look down there. Chapter five, verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Now just pause for a moment. Don't read over that too quickly. Let that hit you with full force. This is Moses praying now to the Lord. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? The people being Israel. He goes on. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he as well, Pharaoh as well. Now watch the same exact phrase come. He has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. There it is. That is the biggest problem that we're dealing with in this text, that God has not come through. And even more than that, that Moses ascribes ultimate causality to the Lord for the evil that the people of Israel are experiencing. Now, of course, Pharaoh has a role in this evil as well. The text says both things. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? And Pharaoh is doing evil to this people. Now, there is a great mystery here, and I do not have any pretenses to having it all figured out. There is great mystery here. But this what this text is revealing to us, it is the constant biblical witness. God is sovereign over every situation, including pain, suffering, and sin. God is sovereign over it all. Joseph's experience, he says, you meant it to his brothers for evil, the selling into slavery and all the rest, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Same it. The selling of Joseph into slavery. God had a good purpose in that. His brothers had an evil purpose in it. Nonetheless, God is the one who's sovereign over it all. Or Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or the cross. In all of its ugliness and injustice is what, is what God had predestined to take place. The cross was God's idea before it was the people's, pilots. God is sovereign and human beings are morally responsible and have active participation in their choices and their choices matter. We know this, especially in light of the crucifixion, because when 
Peter preaches at Pentecost, some of the Jews who are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus hear the message and they say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter turns to him and says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. What does that mean? It means their actions in crucifying the Son of God were sinful. They were guilty for doing that. They were morally culpable. That's what the idea of repent means. There was something they did wrong that in order to be forgiven, they had to repent of. Even though the cross was God's idea, planned from before the foundation of the world. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Now, how those two realities go together, how they fit together is the mystery. But that they go together and fit together is the clear biblical witness. And God doesn't reveal it to us simply to confuse us. God reveals this truth to us because he intends it to be an assuring and confidence-building truth in him, the one who is sovereign over all, the only one who has the ultimate authority to change anything of ultimate significance in your life. That's why God reveals hard truths like this for us. If he didn't want us to know it, he wouldn't have told us. If he didn't have some good design in revealing this to us, he wouldn't have revealed it. But he did. And that's why he did. But back to the story. I'm digressing a little bit. Remember Moses' question. Moses' question is to the Lord, why have you done evil to this people? You said you were going to deliver them. I have seen their affliction. I have come down to deliver them. That's what you said you were gonna do. But now thanks to your idea of going to Pharaoh and commanding him to let the people go, things are worse. It's not deliverance. We just have more severe bondage. Something doesn't sit right. Why? That's his question. Why, Lord? You appear to be not acting in accordance with your word. Why? What's the purpose in this? And this is the heart of the tension in the passage. And so what does the Lord say in response? Let's look at it. Beginning in six, chapter 6, verse 1. He responds by repeating his promise of deliverance, only this time foregrounding our central theme again, knowing him as the Lord. You can see this in verses one to eight. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard their groaning, the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And he finishes his speech by reminding him one more time, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Lord, that's his response. 
It opens and closes his response. It comes in the middle of his response. So, okay, why, Lord, have you done this? That's Moses' question. And his answer is, I am the Lord. <laughs> That's a head scratcher a little bit. What, how does that relate? How does that, what's the point of saying that in response to Moses? And here's what I think. I think the point is that there is something about God's being, nature, essence that is crucial for them to know and as we'll see for the Egyptians as well to know and that would not be known in any other way apart from things happening this way. That's what I think is going on here. God's name, the Lord Yahweh, is a message. It communicates something about him. It's built on the Hebrew, Hebrew verb, I am. And if you remember from last week, in chapter three, in the burning bush, he appears to Moses and says, I am who I am. And then he reveals his name, the Lord. They go together. The name, Yahweh, or the Lord, is built on the Hebrew verb, I am. Hence, I am who I am. And it points to God's absolute being which is then linked to how he's going to save and act on their behalf. Now, in summary, God's name, Yahweh, or the Lord in all caps in our English translations, it implies these realities about his absolute being. I'm going to go quickly through these. I don't expect you to, to get all of this right now. I just want to give you a flavor for what the significance of the name Yahweh is. I'll tick them off real quickly. I have 10 things. One, his absolute being means he never had a beginning. Two, he will never come to an end. Three, he is in himself absolute reality. Four, he is utterly independent, dependent on nothing and no one. He's independent. Number five, everything else that is, that exists, is dependent on him. Number six, everything is as nothing when it's compared to him. Or as John Piper helpfully says, contingent dependent reality is to absolute independent reality as a shadow to its substance, as an echo to a thunderclap, or as a bubble to the ocean. When you look at everything, all the wonders of the world, and you compare them to God, they're as nothing. That's number six. Number seven, he is constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Number, that was number seven, actually. Number eight, he's the ultimate standard of truth, goodness, and beauty. Number nine, he does whatever he pleases. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says. He does whatever he wills. And finally, 10, therefore, in light of all that, he is the most important and most valuable reality. He is the most important and most valuable person in the universe. That's what it means for God to be God. I am who I am. Yahweh, the Lord. That's the significance of his name. So every time we see the word Lord in all caps, we are seeing God's personal name, Yahweh, and are meant to understand by it all of those implications and realities. It's precisely this name that God wills and desires to communicate through the providential design of the events leading up to and including the Exodus. 
This is our text. All of that. These are these providential events that God is using in order to fully make known or display that name. In fact, I'll take it a step further. Every time we see the word LORD in all caps, we should also think of Jesus. For he himself said, I and the Father are one. Or he also said, before Abraham was, I am. And in one of the most stunning texts of the identification of the Son with the Father in the New Testament, Jude 5 says this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of Egypt. What? Jesus saved the people out of Egypt. So when we think of the Lord, we should also think of Jesus. One glorious triune God. Now remember again, Moses' question. I want to make sure this is clear. Why, Lord, have you done evil to this people? That is, why this detour right now in your rescue plan that has actually made things worse for us? The answer then comes in two interwoven parts. It's the same answer really just applied to two different groups of people. The first part, he's doing it this way so that his people might know the fullness of his name in his great acts of salvation and judgment. And part two, he's doing it so that the Egyptians and Pharaoh would know the same, that they would see the awesome reality and power of the Lord in his acts of salvation and judgment. That's the answer. And the implication is that apart from these great acts of judgment, which are intense, remember, these acts of judgment in the plagues that are to come, they come because Pharaoh's hard heart, his hard heart. But God ultimately caused Pharaoh's hard heart And that was the cause of Pharaoh's imposing of the heavier burden, which made the lives of the Israelites even worse. This is just striking. It, It takes us to the top of the Himalayas where it's hard to breathe. The air is so thin. It's It's taking our minds and expanding them so far we get to that point where we're just like, okay, I... It's right at the breaking point. But that's what God is doing in salvation and judgment here. Apart from all of these providential events, including the misery of the Israelites in chapter five, apart from all these events, God would not be known the way he intends to be known. The first part that he's doing this so that the Israelites would fully know him. We've seen that already in chapter six, verse eight. The second part I wanna draw your attention to is actually found in chapter seven, the beginning. So after recounting again Moses' reluctance to speak, which we looked at last week, followed by uh, gaining Aaron to help, the Lord commands them to speak to Pharaoh, and they do. But picking it up in verse three, here's the Lord's response to Moses continuing. 
But, the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. There's that same phrase again. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So just a little parenthesis here. Uh, Some of you in this room are approaching 80. Some of you may be 80 or older. And I just want to encourage you in saying, the Lord is not done with you. There is still much you can do for his kingdom. And I personally just want to be someone who's 80 and working in the way Moses is working here. That would be wonderful. If the Lord is gracious, when I'm 80, I want to be doing this still. But close that parenthesis. That's just a little really interesting, like just throw that in there at the end of the text. They're old, but God is still using them mightily and he can use you too. Okay, now I lost my place. Oh, yes. So we've been looking at the ultimate answer that, th- that the Lord gives Moses to his question of why, Lord, why did you do this this way? And we've seen that the answer is the purpose of God was to display his true nature as utterly sovereign and free to judge and to save. And in that display, be known for who he really is. That's God's aim in all of this, known by his people in glad-hearted worship and thanksgiving and praise, which, by the way, is exactly what they do after the Exodus. They sing. Makes sense. And he wants to be known by the Egyptians in awestruck wonder of his power and might. So in other words, God intends through the twists and turns of the story of the Exodus and through the twists and turns of your own stories He intends to make known the full panorama of his perfections in salvation and judgment. He wants to reveal himself, who he is. I am the Lord. When you see all of this taking place, all the plagues, all the judgments, all the great acts of salvation, it's revealing something about me. I am the Lord. And of course, all of this climaxes canonically speaking, redemptively, historically speaking, in the death and resurrection of Christ, the pinnacle of God's revelation of judgment and salvation. We are dealing here with glorious gospel reality. And so with these themes in mind, as I was thinking about it this week, I just couldn't help but think of the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Some of you would know this hymn. In particular, verses four and five. It says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, which certainly is what the Israelites are experiencing in this moment. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower. The Israelites no doubt experienced the frowning providence and the bitter taste of the bud, 
but God's smiling face behind it all was intent on the sweetness of the flower in the display of his own glory, in salvation and judgment, and for the good of his people. This rings true for the Israelites in the Exodus. It rings true for Jesus. When he said, why, are you, why have you forsaken me, God, but then is raised three days later, and this holds true for all of you as well, the people in Christ. Whatever frowning providences we may experience, behind them all is God's smiling face, working a thousand details in your life for your ultimate good. And so why? To conclude, why the delay? We saw the answer. And there's a really interesting New Testament counterpart to this that I can't help but leave you with. Why the delay? For the same reason Jesus gave Mary and Martha concerning Lazarus when Jesus found out he was very sick and he decided not to go to him right away. He said it's for the glory of God. Unless you think such a response is unloving, which I could imagine someone would hear that and be like, that doesn't sound loving to me. Lest you think that, listen to what John says next. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus And so, or therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, because he loved him, he stayed two days longer and let him die. Got a category for that in your mind? That's what he did. It says he loved them. The demonstration of his love for them, including Lazarus, was to let him die before coming. Now, friends, This only makes sense in the light of the gospel. Your darkest days as a Christian and God's abiding goodness to you in those very days only makes sense in the light of the gospel. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This means that even the enemy of death, perhaps the worst misery we could experience, even that enemy is turned into your servant. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's amazing. Dealing with huge things here, folks. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's true? In the darkest days then, cling to the one who is life. Pour your soul out to him in sincere honesty and remember the day is coming when you will feast in the new creation and you will weep no more. Let's pray. Lord, yes, we do long for that day when we will weep no more and we will be with you in your presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore and the pain and the misery and the tears of this life will be no more. But until then, Lord, strengthen us in the seasons of life where we just feel like you're absent. We just don't know why things are going from bad to worse. We don't know why when we're trying to obey and be faithful, things like what happened to the Israelites happened to us. 
Hold on to us, Lord. Strengthen us and increase our hope. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.